Hello, this is William Chamberlain of Popular Materials Department with the special edition of the Popmatic Podcast. Today we have an interview with director Jonathan Kaplan. Mr. Kaplan has directed such movies as Truck Turner, Heart Like a Wheel, The Accused, and Love Field. Love Field will be showing at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the main auditorium on Saturday, March 12, 2011 at 2 p.m. Now, on to the interview. I would like to start at the very beginning. Would you please talk about your parents, who they were, and what they did? Uh, My father was a a film composer, and he was under contract to uh, 20th Century Fox, and my, my mother was an actress. She's the sister of Van Heflin, who was a movie star in the 40s and 50s, and she worked on the stage in New York primarily, though she's best known for the last 25 years of her life. She was on the soap opera All My Children. She played Mona Kane, the mother of Susan Lucci's character. So that's the, that's that's what people mostly know my mother from. And my father wrote lots of scores for lots of pictures. During the 50s, my father was blacklisted, and so he didn't write anything. He didn't work for 13 years. So there's a gap in his resume. Like you said, your your father was blacklisted. I'm just curious, how did this affect you? Well, I went to work because we needed the money. My mother had worked for the director, Ilya Kazan, whose nickname was Gadge, on the stage, and they knew each other. And I, uh, Kazan famously named names. He was one of the guys who, when he was faced with the blacklist, he caved in and basically turned in his friends. And he was racked with guilt about that, as you could if you ever read his autobiography, he talks endlessly about it. But basically, he had sort of helped destroy my father's career, so he felt guilty. So when I was 10 years old, he offered me, I'd never acted in my life, he offered me and my mother the chance to understudy in a play called The Dark at the Top of the Stairs, 1957, which Kazan was directing and William Inge wrote. And it was really just a way to slip money to my family. But, it, you know, it obviously affected me deeply because that's where I learned how to direct. So working with Kazan, did that influence your directing style at all? Yes. I mean, I didn't know anything about it. You know, I basically was 10 years old and I was just kind of watch observing. But I had known him because uh, there was a regular poker game at our house in Hollywood. So I'd known him since I was like six years old. And he was a warm guy we you know he i used to get him like get him his cigar or you know whatever i mean he we just sort of had you know just sort of casual relationship when he would come and play poker at the house but he kind of took me under his wing i think i mean i think this is all because he felt so guilty about what he had done and i was just fascinated so i just asked him a bunch of questions and he allowed me into every facet of his work so i got to see him work with actors i got to see him work with bill ins the writer i mean what he did what my observing him informed everything I, I know about directing, uh, his respect for the for the text, his respect for the writer, his including the writer in every facet of his decision-making process, and his taking each actor and giving them the respect and the time. His method would be there would be group rehearsals during the day, and then every night of the week would be a different actor's night. We'd finish it rehearsing at, say, five or six, and then there'd be a dinner break, and then you'd come back and it'd just be one actor and him and me and the writer, Bill Inge, and the stage manager, and they'd go as long as the actor needed to go. So I, you know, I didn't realize at the time, but basically the first time I found myself directing, I wondered, where did I get all this from? <laughs> and it was from Gadge. Skipping ahead, in many of the movies you've directed, there is usually an act of rebellion. I'm curious, what's the attraction to that thing? 
Well, it's always a dramatic story. You know, it's always a good story, and it's and I just believe in making movies that are about something. You know, I'm not. I just it's too hard, and it's too much work making a feature film. You know, if it's just about making money, I can't get motivated enough. You have to you have to work for years sometimes. And the actual making of the picture is grueling, and you have to deal with so many people and so many personalities and so much politics and. If there's not something that the movie is saying, if the movie doesn't have a point of view that I'm sympathetic with and, and that I feel this movie has something to offer people beyond just entertainment, then it, that's, it's just not for me. You started out working for Roger Corman at New World Pictures, and there you directed Night Call Nurses and The Student Teacher. Both films are exploitation movies, but I was impressed by the fact they both dealt with social issues from a liberal perspective. Was this something you injected into these two movies? No, Roger, that was part of his formula. Roger himself, that's his political perspective. When he met with me, the first time I ever met him, he hired me up because uh, Martin Scorsese recommended me. He, he was doing a picture with Marty called Boxcar Bertha. Roger was producing it, and they were shooting in Arkansas. And I was, had been Marty's student at NYU, and Roger had this Nurses the Third in his, what he called his Nurses trilogy. It <laughs> was coming up. The director quit. They, he, he and Roger had creative differences, which is kind of a joke to have creative differences over a nurse's exploitation movie, but they did. So there was a directing gig open, and he asked Marty to recommend someone, and Marty recommended me. So I came out to L.A. and visited with Roger the first time I met him, and basically he laid out his formula, and the formula included a liberal political... He wouldn't in, didn't call it political. I think he said a culturally liberal point of view, something like that. But the scripts, all of the scripts obviously were developed by Roger, and they all included his point of view. You directed Jim Brown in The Slams, and I'm just curious, was this filmed in a real prison? No, no. It was, par it was a j partially the city jail called Lincoln Heights in downtown L.A., but it's not a penitentiary. It's a, it's a city jail, and the yard in that picture was created out of a parking lot, and there was a lot of construction done to put up the walls and make it look like a prison. The production designer on that was Jack Fisk, who is a wonderful production designer, and he was married at the time, or he, they're still married. He was, he, I think he was engaged at the time to Sissy Spacek, who had not yet become famous and had not done too much work as an actress. So I met Sissy and Jack for the first time. He introduced me to Sissy. She was working on his construction crew, building the, the wall ar around the slam. You then directed Truck Turner starring Isaac Hayes. Could you just talk about the casting of Isaac Hayes for that role? After the slams, I sort of became, and my, my career has been sort of this progress from one genre to another, and I was, I was sort of uh, one subgenre to another. So I was at first doing the Corman pictures. I was an exploitation director, or a so, sort of what they call soft Corman. Or, you know, so I did those pictures. Then Gene, his Roger's brother, hired me to do the slams, and I became a black exploitation director. So I got hired by American International Pictures. Larry Gordon was running the company for Sam Markoff at the time. And when I signed my contract, the original meetings were all about we were going to get Robert Mitchum or Lee Marvin or maybe Ernest Borgnine to play Chuck Turner. And so, I, you know, I, I was enthusiastic about that. So I was signed, and, and weeks went by, and sort of I was called in for a meeting and walked in, and Larry said to me, we've just cast Isaac Hayes, and you've got to go up to his house and meet with him, and you know it's subject to a meeting. He wants to meet you and see what he's dealing with, and you've got to meet him and see what you're dealing with. You know, and it was a complete surprise. What had happened in the interim was Ike had won the Academy Award for his score for Shaft. And so what AIP figured was that they got him to agree to write the soundtrack if he would play the lead. 
So they figured if the you know if he can't act, who cares? We've got the next Isaac Hayes record. So I went and met with him, and he was was a wonderful man. I he and I hit it off immediately, and it was the it's absolutely the most fun I ever had making a movie. That was the the best experience I ever had in the actual making of the picture. Along with uh, Ken Freeman, you co-wrote and you directed White Line Fever. Could you discuss the origin of this movie because it was an original screenplay? Well, Truck Turner was a big hit its first weekend in Chicago and Detroit. It's where That's where they opened it. So Variety reported on Monday the grosses from the weekend and that Truck Turner was a huge hit. Ken Friedman and I went to NYU together, and we had developed this treatment for, we both big John Ford fans, big Western fans, Howard Hawks fans, and we had developed this treatment for an idea for a modern-day Western with trucks instead of horses. And we'd written this treatment called White Line Fever, and it just so happened that the treatment landed on the desk of Peter Goober, who was second in command of Columbia Pictures. And he read it the, the same weekend that uh, Truck Turner opened. So Monday he comes in and he sees what the grosses are for Truck Turner, and he's got this treatment for what he thinks is my next truck movie. He didn't know that Truck Turner was the name of the character and that there were no trucks in Truck Turner. He thought Truck Turner was about, you know, trucks, and it was a big hit. And here was the treatment for my next truck movie. So we made the deal and ended up making the picture at Columbia. I've noticed this in Night Call Nurses, Truck Turner, and White Line Fever. There are characters in these three movies named Joe Dante. Was this an inside joke for the people at New World Pictures? Well, I've known Joe since I was at NYU. I was introduced to Joe by our mutual friend John Davison, who went on to produce RoboCop, among other movies. And John and I were classmates at NYU, and Joe and John had known each other since they were kids. So I got... I was introduced to Joe by John, and we we became very good friends. So yes, I, I was I was uh, I was sort of sending out a, a, a shout out to Joe whenever I could. Sidney Lumet once said in an interview he wouldn't let Frank Serpico on the set of Serpico because he didn't want Al Pacino to feel the pressure of the man he was portraying. He said rehearsals fine, but not on the set. On the movie Heart Like a Will, Shirley Muldowney had a credit of creative consultant. Did you allow her on the set? And if you did, was it a negative or a positive? I did allow her on the set. It was a total positive. She's a remarkable woman. And I, I just think the world of Shirley, she's just, she was absolutely, she just, you know, trusted me. And I trusted her. And basically, Bonnie Bedelia found it to be incredibly helpful. And if you met Shirley and, and you look at Bonnie's performance, it's astonishing because she channeled Shirley and it wasn't like an imitation it was like she became Shirley and I mean Bonnie's a brilliant actress and you know there's no question that she could have done a beautiful performance without having any contact with Shirley but it wouldn't have been as detailed and as familiar to the people who knew Shirley and Shirley not agreed to be there she wasn't there all the time she was racing so you know she had lots of, she was pretty busy but in the writing process, Ken interviewed her, and I didn't want to meet her. I just I met her once, but I didn't want to have anything to do with her until after we wrote a first draft of the script because I wanted to have Ken get to know her and, and interview her, and then I wanted to listen to the interview tapes and try to take a step back to to be able to structure and formulate the screenplay. And then once we had a first draft, then we gave it to Shirley, and, and then I uh, met her and, and spent a lot of time with her, and she was incredibly supportive. And um, I think, you know, this the movie turned out the best it possibly could, and it's largely due to her participation. 
Could you talk about how you came to direct Love Field? Uh, sure. I was working with the producers Mid Sanford and Sarah Pillsbury on a movie called Immediate Family for Columbia Pictures with, with Glenn Close, Mary Stuart Masterson, Kevin Dillon, and James Woods. And they had developed this screenplay for Love Field with a writer named Don Ruth. They took it to Michelle Pfeiffer. She agreed to do the picture. She was signed to do Silence of the Lamps, but she had decided that it was too brutal. She didn't want to do the movie. Just, it was too violent for her. I had approached Jodie Foster, because we had done The Accused together, with the script for Love Field. And she was very interested in Love Field. We had actually gotten to the point where we were talking about who could play her co-star. And then Michelle quit Silence of the Lambs, and Jodie wanted to go do Silence of the Lambs. So we basically traded. And Michelle took Love Field, and Jodie took Silence of the Lambs. So when, once Michelle got interested, she had a deal, a production deal, with her production companies as, as an executive producer at the now-defunct film company Orion. So she set it up at Orion under her deal. So she was both the star and the executive producer. The casting of Dennis Haysbert. I understood you first had Denzel Washington at first. I was just wondering how you came to cast Dennis Haysbert. Basically, the guy who ran Orion Pictures at the time was a man named Mike Metavoy. He was the one who had made the deal to bring Michelle Pfeiffer to Orion as, as a producer to develop material. And he assured Michelle when they negotiated the deal was if she agreed to do a movie, they didn't have to get another star to be in the picture. Because as she and her representatives know, it's very difficult to get pictures financed. And it's very difficult if you're a star, if they won't agree that you can carry the movie, you then have to go out and get another star. So it was part of her deal. If she said yes to something and it was within a certain budget range, under $10 million, then they didn't have to hire another star. So she was under the impression that Lovefield was going to get made with just her. She and Denzel shared an agent. Their agent expressed his interest in it. So we met with Denzel and we did a little rewriting for him and he was on board. And it became what was started as a little movie became a very hot project because that was the time that they were both in the Oscar running. He for Best Supporting Actor for Glory, which he won, and she for Best Actress for Fabulous Baker Brothers, which she didn't win. But she won the Golden Globe, and she won she won a whole bunch of awards. Everyone thought she was going to win the Oscar. So we had, you know, t two extremely hot stars in this movie, and there was a lot of interest in it. Our base of production was North Carolina, and we were there in pre-production, and we had a, about a week before shooting, we had a cast read-through. And, I mean, Denzel arrived, and Michelle was already there. We did the read-through, and then at the end of the read-through, Denzel asked to talk to me privately. I said, I have to have the producers there if this is something that is regarding your status on the movie. Because I could tell during the read-through he was very distracted, let's, let's put it that way. So Michelle, as an executive producer, stayed in the meeting, and as did Midge and Sarah, and he basically announced that he didn't think he could play this part, that he wasn't a good enough actor to play the part, which was nonsense, but... That was what he said. It turned out later we found out that he had met with Spike Lee about another project that was coming up after Love Field, and that Spike Lee told him that if he did an interracial love story with Michelle Pfeiffer, that he could pretty much kiss his following among black women goodbye. He would, as he called it, his constituency, that he would alienate his constituency. So it was very difficult because the head of Orion, Mike Metavoy, had told Michelle Pfeiffer, and it was in her deal that since the picture was under $10 million, that she didn't need to have another star, another name opposite her. So she said, fine, let's just get the best actor. So the casting director had auditioned Dennis Haysbert for a number of other roles. She recommended him, and the only thing he had done at that point that, that anyone had seen was Major League, 
which, you know, was very different. That character was very different from the character of Paul in Lovefield. So we went to New York and, and did a screen test with Dennis and a couple of other actors, and it was clear that Dennis was wonderful for the role, and there was chemistry between him and Michelle, so we cast him. One of my favorite websites is Trailers from Hell, and you were on there talking about Key Largo, written by Richard Brooks. And right. We were talking about the time that Mr. Brooks and you were cutting your movies on the Columbia lot, and you said when Mr. Brooks would go out and smoke his pipe, you would go out and ask him questions. You directed a television production of In Cold Blood, and Richard Brooks wrote and directed the film version. Did you ever talk, ask Richard Brooks about his version of In Cold Blood? That's a, that's a great question. Yes, we talked a lot about it. It was probably his biggest success in terms of critical reaction, and, and it's probably the film that people know the best, certainly younger people. But he was ambivalent about it because he felt that the Clutters, the family that had, had been murdered, they were more like props in the movie. And he felt that what happened was th there were two surviving Clutter kids who weren't in the house that night who, were, who had already gotten married and were living away. And he had occasion to meet the two Clutter kids who were grown up, obviously. And it kind of broke his heart when he met them. He felt like that he felt that Capote should have and he should have given them more screen time, basically. Made the audience root for the family, understand the family, know who they were as individuals, not just be sort of, here's the father, here's the mother, and here are the kids, but, you know, who are these people? And, and it, Capote obviously went into greater detail, but, the, you know, the, the fascination at the time was always around the killers, particularly Perry, because that was who Capote fell in love with, and that's who he sort of wrote the most about. So, you know, the, the picture became these two individuals that were the killers and the family was more like props that's what that's the way uh, brooks put it he said i you know they were they were really props and he felt bad about that so when i had the opportunity to, to do it i went robert holmey senior was the producer and i said to him listen you know the miniseries is a perfect genre for this i mean it's a perfect form for this for this picture because for this genre because it's it gives us in four hours or six hours a chance to explore the family and get to know them in addition to the killers so brooks was had passed away by then but i always thought that you know i would have loved to for him to have seen my take on it because i think it would have made him happy you directed the accused which jody foster won the academy award and just how did you come to cast jody foster in that role i met jody on a project which we both were desperate to do nancy dowd original screenplay called ladies and gentlemen presenting the fabulous stains it ended up the Diane Lane was in it, and it was directed by, I can't remember his name, the guy who, who was the manager for uh, the Mamas and the Papas and directed a bunch of Cheech and Chong movies. Oh, Lou Adler? Yeah, Lou Adler. And it was, it was heartbreaking because Jody and I, had, you know, had put a lot of time into it, and we developed the script with Nancy, and, and Joe Roth was the producer. And, and so Jody and I got very close during that process, and I'm not going to go through the whole the details of how it got totally <laughs> and we, we were both left out of it. But we became friends. The Accused was a project that Paramount had developed under Dawn Steele's administration with Stanley Jaffe and Sherry Lansing as producers, and they'd been through five drafts, and Jane Fonda had been involved and to play the lawyer, to play the Kelly McGillis part, and she had basically took over the project and put her own writer on, Joan Tewksbury, who's a very good writer who wrote for Altman. But Jane wanted a woman, and so she took Tom Topper off the project, who wrote the original first draft and second draft, and who had written Nuts, the, the original um, play, Nuts. 
and Tom was a reporter. He had worked on the city desk for the New York Daily News, and the accused case was a real case that he had reported on, gone up to Fall River, Massachusetts, and reported on. So anyway, the, I, I at the point at which I got involved, the project was pretty much dead because Jane Fonda had lost interest and she didn't want to do it. So I read the, the last draft, the, the Tewksbury draft that Jane Fonda had supervised, and I felt like that the focus was the lawyer had a sister, and it was uh, what happened to the rape victim. I mean, that's the, you know what happened here. So I asked Sherry Lansing a bunch of questions, and she said, "Well, look, you should read this." And she gave me Tom Toper's first draft, and then I read it, and I said, "Well, this is much better." And I, I had a few questions and some notes, and she said, "Well, you should read this." And she gave me Tom Toper's second draft, and that's what we shot. And, you know, here was a typical example of what happens in Hollywood when they just overdevelop material. You know, they had it. They had it on the second draft. And so I said to Sherry Lansing and Stanley Jaffe, this is, you know, this should be Jodie Foster playing this part. At the time, Jodie was not considered to be box office. She was not considered to be a bankable name. She'd been in a bunch of small movies one of them, one of them, I think, was called Siesta, and uh, she was. She did a picture with Mark Harmon about baseball. I can't remember the name of it. Not that any of these pictures were bad. It's just that they weren't commercial hits, and she was part of an ensemble. So the studio resisted, and Stanley and Sherry had questions. So I called Jody, and she said, "Look, you know, I'll put on a clown's nose, whatever they want. You know, I'll, I'll do whatever I want to do this picture." So I said, well, Stanley Jaffe wants to meet you. He's going to be in New York. Jody was at Yale at the time. Can you come down and meet him? And she said, sure. I know why he wants to meet me. He wants to see if I'm fat. Because there was the sort of rumors that she'd gained a lot of weight. So, I mean, that's the kind of relationship we had. And it was, you know, we were just really honest with each other always. And she did, you know, she was just brilliant on her in her screen test. And there was no denying it. You know, you, you could, I mean, the casting director, Julie Selzer, after she read with Jody, and after Jody's screen test, she was, had just she just left, and the cast director turned to me and said, "The envelope, please." And she was right. <laughs> Jody won the Oscar. In the audio commentary of Unlawful Entry, the producers wanted you to cut down this violent scene, a particular scene in it, because of the intensity. And I was just wondering, when you got in the editing room with the accused, was there ever talk about cutting or watering down the rape scene because of the intensity of that scene? No, no. Everyone knew what the movie was about. You know, everyone understood that the picture had to be an R-rated picture. There's much more pressure now. I had intense pressure on Broke Down Palace to make it tamer, and that took the picture away from me because of it, among other things. There were many creative differences, and they tamed it way down. Same with Bad Girls. Bad Girls was a hard R Western, you know, about these horrors in the West, and the studio just freaked out because... It became, I don't know when it started exactly, but it became sort of the general wisdom in Hollywood that a PG-13 will make more money than an R. I guess the reasons are obvious. So every movie had to be a PG-13. And, you know, they, you'd go to the rating board and you'd have to, and they just tell you what they to cut and you have to come back and cut it. And so I had my experience with the last two features I did was that they weren't really, they didn't represent the movie that I set out to make and the movie that I made because they had to be PG-13. But the accused, there was never any of that kind of nonsense. After making Broke Down Palace, was that the reason why you went to become an executive producer and director on ER and then Without a Trace? Is that why you switched to series work, because they were messing with your film work? No, I'm a fighter. I mean, you know, had I kept 
making features, I would have just fought like hell. I mean, you <laughs> you fight like hell and lose, but no. The, my daughter was born in '92, and when I went to do Broke Down Palace, I was separated from her for six months, and. You know, when I came back to the States and back home, she didn't want anything to do with me. And I realized, you know, that if I wanted to be a father, I'd, I had to stay in Los Angeles or, you know, be able to shoot whatever I was shooting in such proximity that I could get home for the weekends at least. And I went to my agents and I said, I can't leave the city. I mean, I can go to Vancouver or I can go to San Diego or I can go to you know Las Vegas or something San Francisco but I maybe Santa Fe but that's it I can't do any any movies that take me out of LA and they said well you got to get another agent because you know the, there are no movies shooting in LA and it's true you know the, the feature films at that time were oh, seeking cheaper labor elsewhere so Tony Edwards who had who was in heart like a wheel we were friends since then he was 17 at the time and, and then I cast him in, in Cold Blood, and we'd worked together recently, and, and we're back in touch. And he just said to me, you know, you ought to come do one ER for fun. It's really fun, and you'll like everybody. You're going to enjoy the use of the Steadicam. I think it'll be a good experience for you. And I went and did one, and it was fantastic. That original cast was just wonderful. And it was immediately the answer. I could work in town and raise my daughter and be able to do wonderful creative work. You directed my favorite episode of ER called All in the Family, and it was the final episode for Kelly Martin, who played Lucy Knight. That particular show was just a roller coaster from beginning to end, and what was it like to direct that particular episode? It was wonderful. It was just wonderful. It was tough from the point of view because it was very melancholy because Kelly was leaving, and she's a wonderful actress, and she's a wonderful person, and we had a great time with her. Everybody loved her. That's the thing about soap operas and television series and stuff. When someone dies on the show, they kind of die out of your life, you know. You don't see them every day. It's a sad moment. I will always remember it for having to sort of keep Kelly from, make sure that she was okay because here she's been a doctor and working on patients and suddenly she's a patient. And she's literally lying there for hours with nothing to say with her eyes closed. And, you know, that's very hard for someone who's been part of the gang. So, you know, from a, from an emotional point of view, it was tough, but it was exhilarating creatively because I knew, I just kept saying, we're doing it faster, we're going to do it faster, we're going to do it, fa- keep going faster, 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 because I knew that it had to be that, it had to be a roller coaster ride, it had to just be breathless. The first time you, you pause for a breath was at the end when they wrapped her body. I have to ask about, you directed many of the John Cougar Mellencat music videos, and I'm ju- I was just curious, how did that collaboration start? John and I met right after Purple Rain opened. Warner Brothers decided that they had a big hit with Prince. This is literally true. They said, we'll make even more money if we can find a rocker who's white. Let's get a white rocker and and we'll get even more money. And Prince and John are about the same height. I think Prince is a little shorter. But for some reason, John's stature figured into it. They thought they would have better luck with a short white guy, like like they had a short black guy in Prince. So I was involved with Warner Brothers developing something at the time and they asked me would I be interested to meet Mellencamp and I said yeah I was a fan I mean I got to know him mostly through MTV and so we met and we just hit it off the movie eventually came about John directed it because I wasn't available but I, it was my idea to bring Larry McMurtry in to write it 
because I think Larry McMurtry is the greatest living American writer, and I've always wanted to work with him. It was a great experience. I mean, I never got to make the movie, but Larry and John and I developed the script, and John ended up directing the picture and financing it himself. But I so anyway, while we were so we met and we hit it off. So John said, "Would you like to come do some videos for me?" And I ended up doing twenty videos with him. Final question of what are you working on next? I'm freelancing in television. I'm gonna. My next thing is I'm gonna do two more SVU episodes, Law and Order SVU episodes in New York. I'm doing back-to-back episodes starting in January. I'm writing something that I, I'm hoping. My daughter has just started her first year at Vassar, so actually by being in New York, I get to see her a little bit. And I'm developing something that I'm hoping I can get financed, sort of an independent feature, which I would love to do. I would like to thank Jonathan Kaplan for doing the interview. If you would like to hear more, Mr. Kaplan has done a pre-recorded introduction to Love Field, which stars Michelle Pfeiffer and Dennis Haysbert. It will be showing Saturday, March 12, 2011 at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library in the main auditorium on 615 Church Street. It's projected on our big screen, and it's free.